okay, Sean, here's some here's some modern classic internet. It's a it's a four chan post. Oh God! <laughs> and it begins. This really happened with a crudely drawn picture of Ryan Gosling's character from the film Drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to read this out. Decent looking guy having a good job. Not many friends and single because of job. Work third shift. Watch Drive for the first time ever. Changes my life. I want to be driver. Get my hair cut like the driver and start wearing clothes like driver. No scorpion jacket because I'm not autistic. I'm sorry for the use of autistic as a slur. Start behaving like driver. Quiet but cool. Buy brand new 2011 Mustang GT5 liter because driver drove one and I make enough so fuck it. Start eating at this tiny little diner every night. Staff remember me. Always save me a spot. Cutie pie waitress always chats me up. Gives me a free pie. It's something about free pie that makes me laugh. Um, this is fiction. It I, reads like a poem. <laughs> I reciprocate, but remain vague and brooding. Waitress wants me. Ask her if she wants to go for a drive. She gladly accepts. Cruise the night listening to Drive soundtrack. Drop her off at her apartment. Ask if I want to come inside for a coffee. Oh, fuck yes. Play it cool. Brood for a sec. Reply with a ellipses. Yeah. Simple. Wow. Simple. We fuck. Waitress and I start dating. Keep up with my driver shtick. She introduces me to her friends. They think I'm cool as fuck. Some of her dude f- <laughs> <laughs> Some of her dude friends start wearing skinny jeans, white tees like me. Holy fuck, lol. One night her and I sit down to watch a movie on demand. She's browsing movies, stops on drive. Oh fuck. You seen this one yet? Anon? Shit, shit, shit. Play it cool, man. What would driver do? <laughs> Why would driver be in this situation? What would what, what, what would driver do if driver had yeah, seen yeah. drive? Yeah, <laughs> raises a lot of questions. his identity on the film. Breathe for a sec. <laughs> nah, it's not my thing. Ended up watching Bridesmaids. <laughs> Next line and final line. Still dating today and still doesn't know I've been pretending to be Ryan Gosling for four plus years. Wow. So... <laughs> This guy has the most honest to goodness, like uh, Achilles heel kryptonite thing in his life. Yeah. All of us have weakness and vices and things that we're susceptible to or that upset us. This guy's got like a life ruining <laughs> button. It's the play the button movie on the drive. film drive. Like his life could be dest- like uh-huh. not just destroyed, but yeah. like everyone will think so differently of him yeah it will flip from thinking that this guy is cool as fuck and people are copying how he dresses to thinking he is a loser and a psycho though again we can only get that like someone who has copied drive yeah as their entire aesthetic and not just aesthetic but like the way Mm. they behave and treat other people like it's not just a look remember It's also how he responds, how he talks to people. He's he's chosen to empathise via another person's personality. A personality you only spend like 90 minutes with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you've got to do a lot of extrapolating. Oh, what would the driver do in this highly particular urinal conversation? How would he talk to... Not what would Jesus do? Would? Yeah, what would exactly. driver do? You've got a lot more text to extrapolate Jesus's responses on any given thing. Jesus also <laughs> is way more quick to give his yeah, prescriptive advice uh, on what uh, you should do as generalized rules. Yeah, Jesus exactly. is actually quite a, quite a good guy to do this. Very with. clear, I suppose. Whereas Driver, famously, Ryan Gosling went through the script and deleted as much of it as he could to replace it with brooding. Nice. A brooding person, I guess you do have like a uh-huh. an easy thing for every scenario because brooding... If you're brooding, you brood everywhere. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Brooding is a catch-all for yes, a brooding so person. Yes, so we, we, we can flip it then, say, just, just because he doesn't give as much detail as Jesus, in a way, if you ask yourself, what would driver do? The answer is normally brood. Yeah, sort of minimal responses. Mm-hmm. Think about steering. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you who's a lot better than driver, who I'd base my life on, yeah. speed racer. Whoa, speed racer. Yeah? Speed racer. I would imagine you based your entire life yeah. on speed racer. It was all completely technicolor. There was no <laughs> there was no depth of field. And Physics means nothing. Yeah. 
something as simple as like walking to the shop, yeah. you would have to like run and jump through four dimensional space Whoa. and kill a man with your shoe. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone's like, Do you want to watch Speed Race? It's like, Never heard of no, it. Don't yeah, like it. Yeah, no, well, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then you just high five your pet monkey. <laughs> <laughs> no, when they say, Do you want to watch Speed Race? You have to think to yourself, What would Speed Racer do? <laughs> He'd pop it in. He'd pop it on. <laughs> <laughs> He'd say, let's go! friends and welcome to mandatory redistribution party i'm sean morley and i am jack evans and this ep is about the internet of yore the gleaming wires of yesteryear and how its continued existence can only be justified if it makes a solid return on investment. The scope of the internet's reach is ever expanding, compounded by a disease which prohibits outdoor japes. Our entire lives are mediated by shifting between devices of different screen sizes. We look at how the internet has changed over time and has become the playground of a minuscule number of tech titans. We're only allowed on the swings on their terms because all the other playgrounds are not only closed, but gone. A big TY to everyone who subscribed on Patreon. Without your contributions, the show would still be possible, but we'd do it grumpily, no enthusiasm, a slog. If you want to subscribe, hop on to patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party. If you're unable to help us out on Patreon, we do also genuinely appreciate when people share our stuff on social media or 3D print episodes onto like vinyl, which is then posted to local care homes. Now, let's log on. So I remember in secondary school, Mm. MSN Messenger was like, I keep my brain keeps providing the phrase shadow world. Where, <laughs> okay. Where you talk to your friends on MSN Messenger, you talk yeah. to some other people through the school, but also yeah, yeah. knowing people's MSN Messenger mm. email address was like this currency you could mm. pass along. Mm. So sometimes you wouldn't even have your friend on MSN Messenger, but mm. you would have like this acquaintance just because someone else knew them and could give you the email address. Mm-hmm. So you'd end up like developing relationships just on the spider web of like what email addresses you could get your hands on. <laughs> the reason I think of it as a shadow world is you often didn't talk about what went on in MSN Messenger, mm-hmm. but because you would make acquaintances that didn't quite link up with your in-school friendships, which mm-hmm. everyone's secondary school, you know, it's a it's a mean girls hierarchy mm-hmm. of people who have to like or dislike each other based on preconceived notions of who your friends are in this mm-hmm. environment, in this particular corridor for this particular science yeah, yeah, lesson. Yeah, yeah. Mean everyone. But on mean everyone, yeah. Mean teachers, mm-hmm. mean 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 cleaning staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a war of all against all. <laughs> but on MSN Messenger, you know, you're not here to learn science. Uh, you're not yeah, trapped yeah. in a corridor. You can talk to whoever you want. So there were friends you'd have on MSN Messenger mm. that socially you couldn't talk to in the yes. school. Yeah. And there were even like people who you were en- enemies with <laughs> in school. <laughs> but on MSN Messenger, you were yeah, pretty yeah. sound with each uh-huh. other. Yeah. And as well, MSN Messenger feeling less personal uh-huh. and less like in person and less, therefore less anxiety inducing. Uh-huh. You're not called Sean, you're called Dragon Blade. Yeah, and a lot of people did their, like, not romancing, but, like, Mm. information finding on the path to romance Uh Uh through MSN Messenger. I know there was a lot of stuff went on with fake accounts in my school. Of one, I had friends who'd make a fake account to add a girl, Mm. invent an identity, and then ask the girl if they liked their real identity. And that was their way of finding information. Yeah, that's insane. That never worked. No, it didn't surprise me. You surprised me. There's a level of bad plan. Mm-hmm. that can only be described as insane. There's only yeah, a level yeah. of bad plan which should get someone sent straight to the doctors. Teen plan. Teen plan, yeah. <laughs> this plan is rated T for therapy. Um, <laughs> but then there would be people who would ask each other out on yeah. MSN Messenger yeah. because it's less scary. Uh-huh. 
someone asked someone else out on my behalf without my consent mm. on MSN Messenger. Mm. But I was into it. It was good. Thank you. Big help. <laughs> <laughs> but then you have to meet up with someone. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, are we like dating now? Because yeah. that, that was confirmed in the shadow realm. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird as hell. I remember going on a date arranged in that very well, not the way with the sinister second account, but an MSN arranged date to Chester. And it was the, to this day, the most awkward dating experience of my life. Tell me more. Um, <laughs> I, well, we got on the train. I would say half an hour into the train journey. I was like, nah, I want out. Oh, that's that's very fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was it? An actual something happened or just bad vibes? Bad. Do you know what? Vibes. And then mm. obviously, if I wanted out, there's no way I'm concealing those vibes to the extent I can try to conceal those vibes, but they would have been out there. Mm. You know, you're 14, you're on a train to Chester. Bad. You've just given me flashbacks of a lot of bad dates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I remember one. And this was in Hull City Centre. And I'm, I don't even know if this person realises this is supposed to be a date, but they're uh, not giving me any... Because fair enough, you don't realise it's a date, but you at least yeah, give yeah, off yeah. friendly vibes, I think. Let's <laughs> 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 give off like warm vibes. Yeah. And so I'm like, I know how to deal with this. Film. Let's mm. go straight to a film. Mm -hmm. Super bad. It's yeah. not a good pick, I yeah. think. Too oh. many gross out jokes. Too, too much super bad is a, is a comedy about fucking. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. kids oh. who want to fuck. Film is a good choice, but super bad is a terrible choice. I didn't, I didn't Your know. Your premise was sound. How could you know? I didn't know. Yeah. I wasn't going based on trailer. I was going yeah, based yeah. on panic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bad way to choose a film. Although yeah. I think both these scenarios <laughs> cannot be put down to the internet or MSN and should just be put down to teen plan. Mm. Rated T. Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the internet's got worse? One hundred percent, yes, definitely. <laughs> what would you What would you pinpoint? There's only five websites now. Like that encapsulates the whole problem. <laughs> and I remember the first time I read it, I'm like, "That's not true." <laughs> there's loads, but there's not really. There's like, especially when you go to like who owns what. Yeah, in that kind of, you go to a supermarket and someone goes, "You know, only like seven people own all of this," mm. and I'm like. That can't no. be true because this is milk and this is a sandwich. How could that possibly be owned by the same person? Some kind of sandwich milk expert. Are you off your rocker? <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Google. Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And then you Google can do owns like, YouTube. Other... Facebook Google owns WhatsApp. Mm, Facebook owns Instagram. Uh -huh. TikTok for now is separate. TikTok's its own little TikTok universe, is long though, game. It's not TikTok really the is internet. a long game Chinese op that will be triggered in 2040s. You know how the internet's this big connected sphere of websites that yeah, you can yeah, yeah. be on? TikTok is now an app, which is a, like uh -huh. a, a website with a complete fence around it. Uh -huh. So it doesn't behave like a website and you basically need to be on a phone, a phone with all your data and GPS and stuff on. So that's like the long-term game of TikTok is to gather data in such a more extreme way by not even allowing yeah. a browser version of it. Yeah, data, data mining. How you experience the internet's very generational, isn't it? So boomers still don't fully get the internet they're on facebook but their thing their thing was tv when they were young and it's still their thing which is why all the adverts are for boomers like you can be watching blade 2 at one o'clock in the morning the adverts will still be for like audi's life insurance viagra mm. and you can tell boomers aren't on youtube because the adverts are for like vpns and skillshare and boomers don't need skillshare because they've got all the skills they need owning a house and racism boomers go into YouTube if they're fringe boomers that <laughs> okay, aren't yeah, finding yeah. their weird interest here. So if you look at people who have gone super new age, super right wing, or super very strange belief, they can trend a little bit older because mm -hmm. they found a place on YouTube because there wasn't a place anywhere else. I remember getting really into breatharianism, mm -hmm. falling down that rabbit hole. Are you familiar with breatharianism? It's like top tier new age, the belief that you can sustain yourself on sunlight strange that it's called breatharianism which like talks a lot about the breath but really it's about light light mm, energy mm. and there was a woman who charted herself on youtube going fully into this but she was not one of the shills she was one of the mm. she was the duped and so you've got loads of comments people going you'll you'll die you'll <laughs> please don't do this <laughs> she's going oh i'm getting a lot of hate in the comments today anyway Day 17 of me starving myself. That's the kind of older generation that find themselves on YouTube. Yeah, and what that's a good specific example of is how the niche stuff that used to be 
packed out into like a specific message board or a specific website now exists as a part of YouTube or a, or a Facebook group. Mm. You know, that stuff is still there. It's just structured differently and controlled by these like mega corporations. So I think one of the defining things of early internet was it's was peer-to-peer stuff. LimeWire. Let me like, so what peer-to-peer is, is when you don't need like a central server. So all yeah. Facebook and all this other like modern stuff runs on these huge server farms, right? Basically, you could go from computer in your house to computer in someone else's house and you can share a, you know, a Nirvana track or an episode of Lost or whatever. So you got Napster was the big one. Although actually the guy, Sean Parker, went, who was the guy, the Napster guy, do you know what he went mm-hmm. on to do? No. Became president of Facebook, like the guy under Oh, that's thing. incredible. Um, okay. 2004. Peer-to-peer, obviously it's like a structural thing. So peer-to-peer, we still see like Bitcoin has its legacy with peer-to-peer, but also like the way people consume stuff, when you watch the thing was your choice in that, in that sense on demand of like, mm. you know, there's no adverts because someone's edited them all out because it would have been ripped probably from live TV and then put on the peer-to-peer mm. website and then you consume it at your own leisure. I think that had a big impact in like shaping the modern internet in terms of, I think stuff that was done illegally and in a bottom-up sort of improvised way was then honed and harvested by these big corporations. And the, the, that peer-to-peer element, which was so inspiring and so sort of changed so many things, was gone. Yeah. Instead, people can't really share stuff mm. like that they've made mm. and nor can they efficiently steal from the big yeah. corporations and, and just share things that are on TV and... You know, there's been so much done about like sharing apocryphal old weird bits of art that you mm. cannot get legitimately, be it old games or weird bits of tracks and stuff that just isn't even sold in your region. That still gets like claimed. And, and, and so we've got like a copyright law enforced on the internet that says you can never experience this, mm. <laughs> this thing. Yeah. There's literally no way you can ever enjoy this piece of art. Not that we're trying to funnel you into buying a thing. There's nothing yeah, you can yeah, buy. Yeah, yeah. You just cannot do this because that there are copyright laws, and and copyright laws now are not enforced by individuals. Although a lot of the time mm, they are, mm, still loads mm. of DMCA claims. If someone hired an office just to go yeah, yeah, yeah. claim that, claim that. And speaking <laughs> of Napster, like it was just in the news, not the news, but like yeah. it was on social media trending topics, right? That like Metallica, you know, who they went big time after Napster, and basically mm, Lars mm. Ulrich, who's the drummer, yeah. got like Napster shut down. Well, that like set a precedent for like what would become like DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act of that is the American law that underpins why Mm -hmm. things get taken down Mm -hmm. automatically, be they on YouTube, uh, Twitter, uploaded onto Facebook. Or in this specific uh, example, Twitch. (laughs) Yeah, stream through Twitch. Metallica (laughs) did a live concert as part of, was it the... BlizzCon. Yeah, so BlizzCon, Blizzard's a big video game company they did their big conference obviously all online Mm. all like socially distanced metallica did a live concert but it had to be muted everywhere because the algorithms that metallica themselves helped create helped helped create the laws that they're based on they then had to be um played over with like jingle jangle ukulele royalty free copyrighted music while people watch them play (laughs) <laughs> the guitars in silence. <laughs> in essence, it's about control. It's really about controlling what you own. You know, we clearly own our own songs. We own the master recordings to those, and we want to be the ones that control the use of those on the internet. That's it in, in, in essence. So we are going after Napster legally in a legal form, but at the same time, which is becoming increasingly important to us, is to try and get this debate out into the public forum, to try and make people understand what's at stake here, and what the ramifications are if this is not something that's dealt with with some sort of parameters that makes the artists and the fans out there happy. The reason that like memes can exist mm. is because there isn't the level of neural network available mm. to go, oh, I think that frame is actually from Glee. So we're going to get you to stop using that frame yeah. where that woman says, I'm going to create a hostile, toxic environment because they can't recognise those. But every time you fill out a capture form... <laughs> saying which way round should a rhino be, how many like signs are in this picture. The moment, if someone wants to, that capture stuff can go straight towards a new algorithm doing that. At the moment, it's just trying to get smart cars to kill fewer pedestrians. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The mo- but the moment the death counts with an acceptable level, that capture technology is going to go somewhere else. Yeah. 
And it's, so it's the, it's the fact that the internet, like the dream of the internet, and this is the sort of 90s. Here's the playwright and self-proclaimed internet enthusiast, John Allen, talking about the internet in 1993. There's a, an interesting kind of restraint that you find. I mean, there's not a lot of cursing or swearing. There's not a lot of uh, personal um, cuts. There's not a lot of um, put-downs that one would expect to find. There's not, you know, there's not screenfuls of, you know, go to hell, um, which is surprising. So the kind of liberation. Here's your dad's problematic fave, David Bowie, talking about how the internet will end corporate monoculture in 1999. Felt that we were still living under the, uh, 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 oh, with, in the guise of a, a single and absolute uh, created society where there were known truths and known lies and there was no kind of duplicity or pluralism about the things that we believed in. That started to break down rapidly in the 70s and the idea of a, a duality in the way that we live. In, in, there are always two, three, four, five sides to every question. That the singularity disappeared and uh, that I believe has produced such a medium as the internet which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in total fragmentation. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. Here's a clip from the 1995 film Hackers. Hide the planet! Hide the planet! Shut up and get in the car! Hide the planet! Hide the planet! dream of the internet, and this is the sort of 90s people are doing interviews about, well, the internet's going to like liberate people's minds. And it was because it was so decentralized and that is constantly, constantly getting undermined. And it used to feel like the internet was like an escape hatch. Obviously there were still adverts on it. You know, like there's that, the, do you remember the guy who made an, a website in the early noughties that was just adverts? No. Yeah, there's some guy, it was called like the million dollar website or something. So he just made a website and just sold ad space on it. Mm -hmm. Just pure ad space. Um, and that's it. He's the guy who went on to make the mindfulness app Calm because he made loads of money from doing it. Because <laughs> um, it's from like, you know, 16 years ago, loads of the links are dead on it. So I'm not saying there was no adverts on the internet 20 years ago, but it felt like a much less corporate space. It mm. feels like pop-ups or ads are like are worse now than they were 20 years ago. The independence is terrible because yeah. they're, they're, I don't know what it is, whether their ads are more like, animated or something but they take a longer to load in but also they're just like gobbledygook nonsense like yeah. it's the same it's stuff you'd expect to see like on the bottom of a local newspaper bottom ad feed it's like mm. this doctor didn't want you to know about consuming this medicine click here mm. to find more and it's like the independent is receiving minuscule amount of money to promote this yeah <laughs> that's ludicrous well there's that statistic isn't there which i don't know how accurate it is but i i it's in my brain which is that in the 70s the average consumer saw 500 adverts per day but now mm. the average consumer sees 5,000 adverts per day yeah i imagine i can clock 500 an hour on a good day um one thing is that it's a there are massive corporate spaces mm -hmm. and those corporate spaces dominate and have like just managed to collate everyone into mm -hmm. these spaces so mm -hmm. you feel like there's no point being on a little forum forums feel like parochial yeah anything that isn't like legitimate like mm. being on facebook or whatever feels like you're in this weird little community it, it mm. feels not just mm. parochial but kind of frowned upon even something huge like reddit mm. where you could talk about anything you could just create a thing about pogs and just talk about pogs all day i think it gets assumed you are in the alt-right <laughs> just if you have an account on it because yeah. the other thing is like we are a very unique generation we are roughly the same age as the internet, mm -hmm. where I'm not scared of it, mm -hmm. the same way an older generation wouldn't quite know what's happening with this massively expansive technology. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not, it hasn't learned how to like sell to me or use me. I was allowed to grow up in this weird space where the internet was just an unusual, interesting thing, mm -hmm. beloved by some hobbyists mm -hmm. and people who want to share ROMs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a space where the internet didn't have a point yet, didn't have money yet. Every new thing has a golden age before it has stopped making enough money to be considered culturally significant. Because the moment you hit that point, that's it. Your your thing, whatever it is, yeah. is wrecked now. Is that I remember when I was at school, you know, like an IT lesson, the teacher wouldn't know what the fuck was going on because, mm. you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Every year seven kid knew more about the computer they were on 
than the teacher, right? And it didn't help at the time that the syllabus was geared towards stuff that actually was pointless. Like it wasn't that oh we, we all knew we weren't losing important stuff because yeah. everyone had this very this very narrow conception of what was important to learn. And it was optical character recognition. IT that you'd need to use at that time. Yeah. If you went into an office at that time and needed to do a certain kind of admin. Yeah. But by the time we grew up, none of those things, none Even of that existed. software was still relevant. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a complete waste of time. But now the students I teach, they probably know more about like TikTok than me, but they type really slow. So this is one of the issues we've had with like remote teaching. It's loads and loads of students are having trouble typing quickly. They type really, really slowly. Um, do they do boomer two-finger typing? They do boomer two-finger typing because um, they don't use keyboards, right? So yeah. here's, do you remember like when a text message used to cost 10 pence? This is going to, do you remember when, right? But We sound it, old. We sound old, right? <laughs> and this is the thing, you know, I think, but we are old. We are we are old in terms yeah. of the tech, but it's it's interesting, I think. We know how to use keyboards because of things like, say, MSN Messenger, which enabled you to talk mm. to your buddies free, but you did it on a keyboard. You didn't, smartphones didn't exist. Whereas now the thing most, you know, Zoomers use the internet for is talking to their mates, but they're doing it on a smartphone with their thumbs. They are bad on keyboards in a way that we're not, we're, we're fast at keyboards because it's the thing we would use to communicate to our mates. So we're, we're really quick on it, but they type real slow. It is a general trend across like every class I teach. Um, we grew up with the internet alongside it. The oldest Zoomer doesn't remember a world without Facebook. Yeah. Right. And they don't remember a world without smartphones. A keyboard is like some like old caveman thing to them. Yeah. Or like a weird coder hacker thing. Yeah. Like a weird piece of contraband. Yeah. <laughs> we picked up a lot of basic skills say it's reasonably fair to describe either of us as uh, techie. We're uh, not yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. We're not Fox Dog Studios. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We've got friends yeah, who yeah. we'd go, that's like proper techie. Yeah. But the reason is that we never set out to learn any of these things. It's that the internet mm. kind of sucked, computers kind of sucked, yeah, yeah. and they didn't work a lot, and yeah. you needed to know. It's like when your parents suddenly start like treating you like you know how to operate the TV because yeah. you know how to plug in the aerial for the Mega Drive. Yeah. And they're like, oh, you know what happens back there, so can you like sort this out? Yeah. <laughs> It's like what you don't know how to tune in a you just set a new channel and you tune it <laughs> yeah. into an, to an, to an aerial button. yeah yeah and then suddenly you realize oh i know these things mm. that my parents don't know when the computer mm. that expand i don't mean to anyone listening who's younger yeah. than us uh I, what i've said about the mega drive and the aerial is going to sell a real yeah, yeah. gold we, yeah we sound like fucking apes and we realize yeah. but that's interesting but, i think that's interesting the apification yeah. of millennials. Well, it's we learnt loads of skills because the internet and computers had such an incredibly bad user experience. Yes. Because they hadn't really learnt what people want to use them for. Yeah. So you can't really make a good user interface if you don't know what people want this machine for. Yeah. And after a while, they did. I remember when loads of my friends started getting Apple stuff, and the thing that really put me off is that if it broke, yeah. you can't look under the hood, either like uh, hardware or software-wise. Yeah. You can't go in and fix it. And things really bother me now. Now, mm -hmm. where I can't go into a very complicated settings panel mm -hmm. and make things be just right or fix things if they've gone a bit wrong. Yeah. One of the things that really bothers me about all social media is that there aren't any advanced search features. I yes. can't put in a search range and I can't say, tell me if this person's ever used this word between 2015 to 2017. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that search feature keeps yeah. me on Twitter. And the only reason that they haven't got rid of it is because not enough people use it. If that was used more widely, they'd get rid of that because it makes it makes Twitter too navigable. Mm. And that, that brings us on to like the second half of it, which is first you make a user interface to make someone's life better, but then you keep the user interface to like funnel them into an area where mm. they can see all the adverts, they are have to follow the trends. They need to keep people in the now yeah. constantly. Because the now keeps people clicking, it keeps them looking at, the, it keeps people putting the traffic where the people with the money want the traffic to go right now. Mm. It's the same way that a city is built. You mm. build a row of very clean looking streets yeah. from your train station right to your main shopping street. Because yeah. you don't want people wandering out of there because there's none of like the centralized money yeah. has gone into making those look nice. And the money from that doesn't go into like, the economy that you're trying to push. <laughs> and and we design our social medias in the exact same way. Mm. Mm. 
you know, like there's all these initiatives that come from boomers about like fake news and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it's not a fucking problem for millennials and Zoomers because we don't, it's the old media. That, whenever any fake news gets spread, it's because the Times or the Daily Mail or the Daily Mirror or Fox News or whatever, pick up a, cl- a thing that's clearly a joke. Yeah. And then believe it's real and then spread it. And then they're the people who are like, oh, we've got to stop this. And because they found it on the internet, they go, oh, the internet is is this, is where fake news is coming from. Yeah, as and opposed it's... to their own illiteracy in the <laughs> yeah. internet. Yeah. They've gone, been duped, and then they've decided they've been lied to when they've read a joke. Yeah. These guys, if these guys were of a different age, they'd be litigating against the back of penguin bars. <laughs> Well, and also, you know, we don't talk about fake news. Go, go look at the fucking archives of uh, British and American front pages at the start of the Iraq yeah. War about weapons of mass destruction. You know, that's not that's not a fucking internet problem. But they object to not having a monopoly on fake news. Yeah, but it's interesting because that's the so the the moral panics about the internet now are fake news, anonymity, and general culture war stuff. Whereas the old moral panics about the internet used to just be like, oh no, porn. Yeah. You wouldn't steal yeah. a banana. You know, like they were the two things yeah. of piracy piracy and porn. And maybe I am nostalgic for that moral panic compared to like, you know, the more, the modern one of, oh no, a Simpsons avatar has called Keir Starmer Keith again. They must be stopped. While ignoring and not doing anything about like, you know, fucking Cambridge Analytica building an algorithm that makes 20 million uncles racist against a different group each week. I think from what you've said, I think I can distill down the most important factor for yeah. why the internet sucks now and we have very fond memories of it from like 15 years ago. Well, apart from just youth nostalgia. <laughs> I think youth nostalgia is mixed in, but I think there is one key thing that is true. Not everyone was there. Right. Very few people used it and the people who did mm. sort of opted in. Mm. It wasn't like a public forum for all of society. Mm-hmm. It was just for us internet heads. <laughs> I, I, I have lots of forum, virtual bulletin board nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And Same. on that, you know, you would think that I would have far more diverse groups of friends on Twitter, which is like huge, mm-hmm. than I would when I was just thrown into a little forum that just had people on a niche interest. But really, mm-hmm. I met people from around the world from every single continent mm. on on that forum. Yeah, and they same, had very yeah. different... Like, I was on a little forum, and we had a little chat room, and I'd spend time in the chat room in addition to the forum. I think I'm still a mod, yeah. but I've not been there in, like, 10 years. But, like, one of my friends was a Mexican communist. Mm. There was, like, a few, like, conservative American university students... There was a guy who was a jihadist. Mm-hmm. He fully believed in the jihad. And we were like, <laughs> oh, this guy again. But he was still our friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was still our friend, but he did believe on doing a jihad to the West. Yeah. And we had to put up with that. Yeah, we, yeah. we didn't ban him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was just yeah. we all got on and talked about other things. <laughs> yeah. Because you were, you were on there for the niche thing. You didn't need to well, cover we all, were, all the other we bases. We were a weird forum where... The niche thing had gone because mm. um, the admin decided that ROMs was too hot. Uh-huh. It was too yeah, hot yeah. to be a ROM site. Uh-huh. So we had no purpose and our membership just dwindled away for a very, very long time. <laughs> then we became the official forum of some shitty clicker game. But the wow. thing is, that was made by the admin, the admins. And none of us liked the clicker game or anyone coming in via the clicker game. And we treated them as like second class. Yeah. And we made a, a partition in the forums for them to talk about their clicker game that we didn't care about. And then for us to talk about different things. And if anyone else came above that line, they got treated like shit. And I'm not defending that. We just didn't like them. But if they stuck around for long enough, you could kind of earn your way in. Because I was like, we're going to do a, an old internet episode. I went to look for old message board type stuff. Some stuff's just gone. Some stuff's just... I had a mixture of finding stuff that has just gone and then me going like, oh, have I forgotten the name here, blah, blah, blah. And I could find references to things, but then the the whole thing's just gone, which is Mm. quite grim. And then the other thing of like, you know, like finding yourself, you know, two decades, a decade and a half ago and going, fucking hell, this this guy's annoying. (laughs) Oh, I hate it. I hate it. I have like old diaries I won't look at. And I've... I don't think we've reckoned with, and this is a whole side issue to the internet. This is more about like people's behavior. I don't think we've reckoned with like the amount of people who um, grew up being photographed for mm. like baby clicks 
mm. and have been documented completely. Because I saw a TikToker who's who's talking about being the subject of a really early mommy blog, mm-hmm. like before social media, mm-hmm. and how that's given her like complexes throughout her life. Oh, wow. Except now I think her scenario is now the norm because mm-hmm. everyone just documents all their baby's moves. So I think there's a, there's a divide between the more sort of curated online presence of people who have grown up with, you know, like I said, like people who've grown up with smartphones is just a normal thing. People who've grown mm-hmm. up with Instagram. I think a lot, a lot of when they've chosen, so not their parent putting them as a picture of a baby, but when they have had control, there's a more curated self and curated experiences that are shared yeah. versus millennials who just have like pictures of themselves on like some carnage bar crawl that they've yeah. forgotten are even on there. It w- it was much less created and much more like just these giant fucking photo dumps in the sort of early yeah. 2000s when, uh, the, you know, early social media. Less, I think the same habits have been cultivated and shared now in terms of that, that curated image and that, you know, quote, personal brand, end quote. That's, you know, when people talk about like mental health online, which I guess is the other, mo- you know, modern moral panic about the internet is the effects of that self-curation and like how much that's fucked you up. But on the flip side... It's probably true that like doom scrolling Twitter to find out what the, you know, the Tories are harvesting school children's blood to make themselves immortal or, you know, the, the curated version of yourself for Instagram and the dissonance between that and your true self. Like that's quite bleak. But at the same time, probably like watching Salad Fingers probably did some damage to your brain as well. No, <laughs> come on. No, I was with you the whole way. Everywhere I was nodding. And being, yeah. No, David Firth kept me. David Firth no. kept me from the edge. <laughs> yeah, David, David Firth is a genius. Um, that stuff still exists, but obviously it's like kind of deep YouTube now. I was going to make a compilation to show how corporate the internet is right now, but instead I just found this one clip that kind of gets a point across in and of itself. Uh, this is genuinely the first few seconds of a video from Simon Whistler's channel. Today I found out. In our video today, a war crime so horrifying so disgusting, so vile, that even the Nazis were like, whoa, this is some crazy sh**. But first, this video is sponsored by HelloFresh. This guy also hosts videos for Visual Politic, which is funded by a right-wing Chilean think tank that pines for a return to Pinochet's dictatorship. He has 2.6 million subscribers. There's videos on Newgrounds that, like, cemented my sense of humour and interest yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. People making weird stuff mm-hmm. that that I was dead into. Mm-hmm. This was like, I didn't watch TV at this point. I mm-hmm. watched more Flash videos than I watched the TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And with Flash now disabled, there was a scramble for people off their own back just to mm-hmm. archive whatever they could. Mm-hmm. And anything that's not archived, that's it's just gone. gone. Yeah, yeah. And that's just talking about Flash animations. That's sad. It's still cultural. But the degree to which I look for old news stories mm-hmm. using Google or Bing or whatever, so many things are gone. And the internet that was like uploaded about 10 years ago, maybe even less than that, it's unusable. You just cannot navigate those websites. Mm-hmm. And this we're talking about like national press here. Mm-hmm. This is websites mm-hmm. run by national press organizations. Those stories are just vanished. But Wikipedia links still go back to them. Like they are linked to elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. This is the citation we've had to prove this bit of history happened. Gone, not maintained by the by the admin. Like I said about looking for my participation in like old message boards or whatever, it's just gone. Like most of mm. the internet isn't being archived. So there's, you lose stuff because of text, so like Flash, for example, but then you get just big errors, like MySpace deleted 12 years worth of, I think, music, because MySpace, you know, like Arctic Monkeys got big on MySpace music. So MySpace music, mm. as much as MySpace kind of tanked, MySpace music was like pretty important for a, a while later. But they did a server migration. All music uploaded between 2003 and 2015, gone. Wow. Right? I mean, that's what th- were those dates? What were those dates? 2003 to 2015. Oh, well, that's the only recordings yeah. of the band I was in as a teenager must be gone then. Yeah, yeah, honestly, gone. gone, right? But then like, why would you hear, but like, <laughs> right. they're not going to notify you, are they? You're not going to think about it, right? There's a thing called the Web Science Institute at the University of Southampton, which is trying to archive the internet. But obviously they can't archive everything because of the amount of, A, the amount of time it would take and B, the amount of like just data that is. And it's a constantly evolving thing. But like, it's an interesting thing to think about. Like most of the internet is not archived. The local newspapers get fucking archived in libraries. Mm. They have to be. But most of the internet is gone. Like the, the early days of the internet, the majority of it is gone, never to be seen again. Mm. Nightmare for historians. But also just a nightmare for like to, to live in. It's just a nightmare to, <laughs> to, to live and exist in, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
because we're constantly i mean we're just talk, we're talking about this as people who like observe our politics quite a lot through online and also you know in the last year observed mm. every aspect of reality that's not the park mm. and the sun <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> through, yeah, yeah through a screen we're constantly like hearing things and we're going hang on that completely conflicts with something else i've been told mm, we're mm. constantly getting these like conflicts and we find out like oh the the stuff from that has been gone away now mm, so that's mm. not only like a memory hole isn't inside the mind the memory hole is inside the server which is our collective <laughs> consciousness because it's that which we can prove wow imagine like in 1984 if it's not just that it's that it's not people going out and burning books or like putting black marks through stuff it's just collectively as a culture we've just we just put everything in the bin after five years yeah <laughs> like it's not it's no authoritarian regime to try and destroy the past mm. it's just like uh we just generate too much data just destroy it wow Combine that with the other thread that, that we I think there's still more to say on is mm. that previously not everyone was online mm-hmm. and that creates an environment where being online means that you are constantly in the public forum mm. and you're getting every viewpoint often at once because even if you're just following your friends, your friends are like quote tweeting mm. things that they disagree with so mm-hmm. that you then need to reckon with a lot of different viewpoints at once constantly and a lot of people myself included just live our lives in these little breakout rooms of like uh, dms and group messages and we just bunkers. talk to like a very little bunkers <laughs> where we bunkers. just talk to very small selections of friends yeah and so we've got like these complete extremes. I remember most of my life was lived with talking within a subculture mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of like a few hundred people. Mm. And now I only talk to either five people <laughs> or a million people. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got those two yeah, yeah, yeah. choices of uh, audience. Wow. And that feels fucked. I want small communities again. Mm. Because small communities can like get stuff done and actually ever come to consensus on anything. <laughs> Imagine expecting Twitter to come to a consensus on a topic. What actually is the point of discussing it? Maybe internet isn't bad. Maybe Twitter's bad. I think that's roundly the consensus. Yeah. All right, we've I reached will a be conclusion. On. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Fucking two people takes no time. Log off. <laughs> yeah. Hello, everybody. It's me, the sentient core of the internet. I observe your every waking moment. I watch the drama of human civilization unfurl before me like horny Sylvanian families. Today I will be interviewing Dr. Natalie Ashton, who will be talking to us about epistemic friction and social media. Good evening, Dr. Ashton. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Could you tell us what is epistemic friction? Epistemic friction is that feeling that you get when you encounter somebody who has a very different understanding of the world than you do. So the epistemic part means that it's to do with knowledge and understanding, and the friction part is to do with how difficult that situation can be, but also how it can be productive. Think about when you learn about friction in school, they always tell you to rub your hands together. And when you do that, you can feel resistance. And if you keep doing it, you can feel heat. The idea is that something similar happens when you encounter different ideas and different values. When that first happens, it can be really jarring and difficult, but if you respond to it in the right way, it can be really productive because you can learn something both about yourself and about the other person. Thank you for your hand rubbing analogy, which I, a computer, understand. Next question, what can epistemic friction teach us about how people communicate online? I think epistemic friction is really useful for thinking about the ways that different social media platforms help us to interact with one another. Take Twitter and Facebook as an example and compare them. On Facebook, the platform is set up so that you mostly interact with people who you already know. So you're probably going to be friends with people who you know from school, perhaps like your family, people from work, that kind of thing. People you already know in your real life who probably have relatively similar lives and experiences to you. But then when you think about Twitter, on Twitter, you're going to be exposed, most of the time you're exposed to a whole different range of people. It could be people from all over the world, people who have different political views, people who have had very different life experiences. Twitter exposes you to a lot more epistemic friction. You have a lot more chance to encounter different viewpoints and have that kind of jarring feeling than you do with Facebook. So do you think it's possible to analyze the epistemic friction potential of any given social media platform? Uh, Yeah, potentially. I think that's kind of what I'm doing. I think that's interesting to do. So if I gave you an example, 
you'd be able to bash out a quick ranking. Yeah, yeah, I'll just crunch the numbers and then I'll say good platform or bad platform. TikTok. Kind of too early to tell, but I think TikTok is very interesting. Potentially good. Roblox. Is that like Minecraft, but for younger kids? How, how much friction do you encounter on Roblox? Well, you could, uh, meet an enemy. Yeah, 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 meeting enemies. Yeah, there's a, there's a chance for epistemic friction then. So maybe Roblox is, is epistemically good. If that is the case, then Call of Duty is probably a decent. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I imagine there's lots of conversations about politics on, on Call of Duty. Well, I think you would be surprised. I heard quite a bit of discussion which could be described as political, but perhaps not the kind of politics that you would like. You know how we're talking about corporations mm. coming in and taking over all the space? Mm -hmm. There's a form of, like, primitive accumulation. What's happened to the internet, ultimately, is a process of primitive accumulation and enclosure. But instead of happening to the common land, it's happened to, to the internet. And as I said earlier the internet and the best aspects of the internet with these peer-to-peer person-to-person community aspects social but wouldn't have been referred to as social media because the concept didn't exist yet and sharing of you know freely sharing things in a perhaps sharing episodes of Battlestar Galactica isn't mutual aid however it is a space it is, it is a space outside of corporate control that's what it felt like and that felt good and that has gone. We're not saying that niche internet subcultures have completely disappeared, but where they exist now is inside YouTube or inside Facebook. They've been enclosed. If you want to hang out, you've got to do it in someone's business. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I like this form of analysis and I want to just take it slow so we're not losing anyone. So, so the common land is what existed like before land was massively private. Oh my God, are we going to do, that... are we going to re-explain the enclosure of the common land? Have we already done this? So I thought, uh, it's, have we done this already? If you want to know more about primitive accumulation, check out episode 46, Moon Hermit, or for a super brief overview, the capitalism explainer in episode one. So we honkin Thank you for listening to mandatory, mandatory redistribution, redistribution party. party. One thing that I think that we need to go into that differs on the internet is that no one enclosed us out of just building our own little websites we can still do that i could build a website today but mm. no one would go there no one would ever know it exists and it's become impossible to get anyone to, to care about it the only place you can put things are on social media or to get them like aggregated and someone picks up mm -hmm. everyone who does anything is kind of scraping looking for someone to go wow have you seen this thing five mm -hmm. buzzfeed articles of things that they had to send us press releases for us to look at in the first place we could just go all and leave twitter and facebook and just go back and make tiny communities we we won't and i don't think it's fundamentally a helpful thing to say because it's just like saying we could all just stop eating meat or everyone could just stop going to mcdonald's overnight while it's sort of technically true it just you could just ignore capitalism. You could just say, don't want to do this anymore. And if you've got enough people to do it, but what you're describing is a revolution. It's very hard mm. to make happen. Logging off is a revolution. <laughs> but enough people did it. Do you know Tim Berners-Lee's making internet too? No. Yeah, Tim Berners-Lee says he's making a, um, a sequel to the internet. What? He said, this, one's, this one sucks. The headline is the guy who made the internet says, this sucks. <laughs> And it's not, it doesn't need to be fixed. It just needs to be scrapped. <laughs> it needs to be a new one. So if it's important to be exposed to new ideas, does this mean we need to ensure exposure on online platforms to ideas like racism and fascism? Because I feel like I have been doing quite a good job of this already. So when I talk about exposing people to epistemic friction, um, I'm not, I'm not saying that epistemic friction is always good in and of itself. So one thing that's worth thinking about is who we prioritise when we want to increase epistemic friction. And we're going to get the most benefit if we hear from new people or new ideas that we haven't heard before. And so somebody like the BBC is going to put a fascist on question time and say that that's a new idea. But I think we all know that that's not really a new idea, right? Those are ideas that we've heard a lot 
from at one point they were they were dominant mainstream views and we've all thought about them and we've decided that they are bad ideas and we have dismissed them what i suggest is that we prioritize hearing from the people who by definition we don't hear from very much so marginalized people marginalized groups those are people who by definition we are less likely to hear from and so my suggestion is that we amplify those people's voices and we increase our epistemic friction in that way and that is why i think that for example twitter can be a really good platform for us epistemically because you can hear from people who are marginalized in lots of different ways in lots of different places very easily and we can learn a lot that way last question how would you use these ideas to propose a new way to make social media platforms better in the future so there are two things that i think are important for improving social media and making sure that it's epistemically beneficial for us one thing is amplifying marginalized voices because this helps increase our exposure to epistemic friction but then the other thing that i think is really important is something that i call epistemic respite i think we should or social media platforms should make space for people to step away from epistemic friction and to step away from those alternative voices in order to keep those platforms sustainable so you see lots of people who decide to take digital detoxes and they'll just completely you know they'll take all the apps off their phone they'll give their friend their password or whatever and they'll completely disengage from social media altogether i think what is better is if users of social media platforms have control over how much friction they're exposed to on twitter this could be things like you can mute certain words if there's like a particular news story or a particular topic or something that it's just doing your head and you're hearing too much about it rather than like unfollow somebody or completely take the app off your phone you can just mute certain words so that you can have a week off from thinking about that kind of thing the really important thing about epistemic respite is that it's it's flexible and it's in your control but also that it's temporary so when i talk about epistemic respite i mean that to be like a holiday so what we don't want is to create echo chambers like on facebook we don't want people to be able to shut out sources of friction permanently but temporary spaces where we can have control over how much friction we have i think is really important to learning on social media. Fantasy Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Additional music from Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Thank you for listening and thanks to those of you who support us on Patreon or share episodes on social media. We really do appreciate it. I hope you're doing all right. Extra special thanks to our guest, Natalie Ashton, who sat through an interview with the internet, which sounds quite difficult, actually. Natalie can be found as Natalan on Twitter. Thanks also to the anonymous 4chan account who created that wonderful piece that we used for our introduction, whoever you are. I want it to be real. But even if it's not, it's, it's high art. La, la, la.